Hebrews 11, and we read the first 16 verses. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims, on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Thus far our reading from the New Testament. This evening to the word of God as found in Genesis 12, the first eight verses. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, 
and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And what follows through the eighth verse, and he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. With the calling of Abram, beloved, from Ur of Chaldees, the history of the covenant of God in the midst of the world enters upon a new stage and assumes a different form, not indeed in the sense in which it has often been explained, or perhaps I should say misexplained, that beginning with this calling of Abraham, you have an interlude, something in between, as though before the calling of Abraham, uh, the covenant of God was universal, embracing all families of the earth, while at the calling of Abram, it becomes particular, being limited to a certain nation, and with the new dispensation, it becomes universal once again, embracing all the nations of the earth. That's certainly not true. It's opposed, first of all, to the general way in which the Lord our God always works. There are no interludes, no recesses in God's work. There's always continuous progress, continuous development, and progress toward the revelation of God's covenant. But besides, you know, that explanation does not harmonize with the facts of the Bible. God's covenant had not been universal before Abram. It had been limited, very plainly, to definite families and generations. That was true already before the flood. Even though there were no nations yet, the earth was of one language. Nevertheless, God's covenant followed the line of Seth, Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, and the generations of Cain were excluded. And after the flood, you have the same thing. Again, although there were no nations yet, and all the earth was of one language, God's covenant was confined soon after the flood to the line of Shem. Shem had the blessing. And God's covenant is not universal now. We must never forget that. Though his people are among all nations, God's covenant is certainly not universal. It follows and has always followed in the course of history the line of election in certain generations among those nations of the world. And you can trace that through the course of history. But this is a new era of God's revelation in the sense that beginning with Abram, God gives to his covenant a definite form and a definite manifestation in the midst of the world. A definite manifestation which was at the same time a type and a shadow of things that were to come. The Lord purposed to form a people for himself, 
a people that would be separated from the world. And at this stage in the revelation of his covenant, he purposed to form a people in Abram with a national existence in the nation of Israel. And in its national existence, his covenant people were to be separated from all nations. And they were to be, in that, typical of the spiritual separation of God's people in the midst of the world now. For that purpose, that they may be to the praise of his glory in the midst of the world, the praise of his grace, they receive, following Abram, all the types and shadows, starting already with the land of Canaan itself. As long as reality has not come, they have the types and the shadows that they may be under a uh, schoolmaster, as Galatians puts it, under the schoolmaster of the law to bring them to Christ that was to be until Christ came. And finally, at the same time, that covenant people must be the bearers of the holy seed. They must ultimately bring forth the seed of the woman, Christ, in whom all the types and all the shadows of the old dispensation shall be realized and fulfilled. In one word, the Lord now forms a people in the midst of the world to whom he gives the form of his covenant in types and shadows and through which they may look forward as they did, as is plain from Hebrews 11, through which they may look forward to better things to come. And that process begins with our chapter of tonight, Genesis 12. I call your attention to the calling of Abram. Let's notice in the first place God's calling. And in the second place, Abram's obedience. God's calling and Abram's obedience. As far as the time is concerned, it may have been almost two centuries after the building of the Tower of Babel which we considered last Sunday evening, and after the confusion of tongues. And in round numbers, it was some four centuries after the flood. Two things we ought to notice in connection with the development of the human race during this time. In the first place, the lives of men had markedly decreased in length. They didn't live as long anymore as they did before the flood. The oldest man, you remember, was Methuselah, 969 years old. They didn't live that long anymore. The first change took place immediately after the flood in the sons of Noah, and that was connected undoubtedly with the change of conditions in the earth. But there was another change that took place at the time of Babel, at the time of the confusion of tongues. Our attention is called to that in uh, Genesis 10, uh, verse 25, and unto Eber, uh, let me go back just a little bit, and Arphaxad begat Selah, 
and Selah begat Eber, and unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. That name Peleg means division, and it was given him because it was at that time that the confusion of tongues took place. Now, if you turn to Genesis 11, the last part, where you have the account of the generations of Shem, notice that in verse 16 you read, And Eber lived four and thirty years and begat Peleg. And Eber lived after he begat Peleg four hundred and thirty years and begat sons and daughters. So uh, the total years of Eber, the father of Peleg, were four hundred and sixty-three years. And then you read of Peleg in verse 18. And Peleg lived thirty years, and he begat Reu. And Peleg lived after he begat Reu two hundred and nine years, and begat sons and daughters. Notice the change. A change of almost two hundred years in the lifespan at the time of the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel. That was one thing that was to be noted in this connection. The second is that children were also born to them at an earlier age than previously. So at this time, it may easily have been that the population of the world had grown to as much as a hundred million. It wouldn't take much figuring and it would not take a large rate of increase to account for that. A hundred million population and they were no more concentrated at Babel, remember. They were scattered, scattered in different countries throughout the world of that day. Abram, at the time that the Lord called him, lived in Ur of Chaldees. That's a city in the southern part of Mesopotamia, the southern part of the Valley of Shinar, near the point where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers join. One of the trouble spots in the world of our day, in the neighborhood of the Persian Gulf, you know. Scripture doesn't tell us any more about the city of Ur here. Tradition tells us that its inhabitants were already given to idolatry and that they worshipped especially the moon for which they raised a temple. In that connection, we may also point out that the control of things in the world was no longer in the hands of the God-fearing. And that in that light, in the second place, the conditions that existed at that time were the occasion, not the cause, but the occasion for the call that Abram received to leave and go to another land. As far as the general conditions of the world were concerned, we may notice that from a social point of view, the attempt at the world power under Nimrod and Babel had failed. It had been frustrated by God. And the race, the human race, was now scattered 
in different tribes and nations over the earth. From a religious point of view, it was a time of apostasy. We must not imagine that as worldly philosophy likes to present it, there was a gradual evolution from polytheism, the service of many gods, toward monotheism, the service of one god. That theory is impossible. And it's impossible for the simple reason that the people had known the true God only 400 years before this. They had all come out of the ark. And what came out of the ark was historically the church represented in Noah's sons and their wives. And they knew the true God. The reverse was true. There was no move from the service of many gods to the service of one God. The reverse was true. Conditions developed in the world at that time as they are described in Romans 1 from verse 18 and on. I won't take the time tonight to refer to that. You can look at that when you get home. But that was the situation. Men refused to glorify and thank the only true God. And God gave them over unto idolatry and to all kinds of related sins. Besides that, we must remember that that was true even in the line of Shem. When you consult the book of Joshua, you learn that Terah, the father of Abram, the tenth from Shem, the tenth generation from Noah, Terah was an idolater already. Now all of that doesn't mean that Abram was the only God-fearing person left. And it doesn't mean that Abram had to be called and separated uh, in order to preserve the true religion. When I was a little lad in catechism class years ago, I had a, a book. Fortunately, it wasn't written by a Protestant Reformed minister. But I had a question and answer book that had the question, why did God call Abram out of Ur of Chaldees? And the answer was to preserve the true religion. Well, beloved, that's simply not true. It's not true in the first place because if God intended to preserve the true religion in Abram, he did a mighty poor job of it. Mighty poor job. He sent him to the land of Canaan, and Canaan was full of idolatry. That was about the worst place that he could have sent Abram if he purposed to preserve the true religion in him. But that isn't true. The true religion was not merely represented in Abram at that time. Besides, God doesn't have to call his people out of the world for that purpose. We have to remember that together with that tenth generation of Terah, if you study the genealogies that you find in, in Genesis 10 and in Genesis 11, you know, people like to skip over gener uh, genealogies rather often, but they're very interesting. They give us a lot of information. If only you study them. If you study those genealogies, you discover that together with that tenth generation, Terah, the first generation after the flood, and most of the uh, post-flood patriarchs were still living. 
Shem was a contemporary of Abram. You mustn't forget. So that whole notion doesn't hold water. There were still many people of God. God didn't have to call Abram out of Ur to preserve the true religion. And you must remember, as I said, that the land to which God called Abram was inhabited by idolatrous races, by Canaanites, the descendants of Canaan, the cursed son of Ham. People have often associated the curse upon Ham with the black race in Africa. That's not correct, of course, at all. The curse in Ham's house was upon his son Canaan. And Canaan was the father of the Canaanites in the land to which God called Abram. And that curse was ultimately carried out when the Canaanites were blotted out at the time when Israel conquered the land. So that was the situation. And God calls Abram out of Ur of Chaldees to to accomplish his own purpose, to continue in him and to develop in him and through him his covenant. The tenth generation was falling into apostasy and the time was ripe for Abram's separation. And from this point on in the history of the old dispensation, God left the heathen nations more and more to walk in their own ways. And he concentrated upon the generations of Abram and Isaac and Jacob and Israel. The calling came to Abram, who was the son of Terah. His brothers were Haran and Nahor, of whom the former, Haran, died in Ur. And ever since that point, it seems that Lot, Haran's son, and Abram's nephew, clung to his uncle Abram. At the time of the call, Abram was already married, and his wife's name was Sarai. That call came to Abram, we must remember, at Ur of Chaldees. Not first in Haran, as has been claimed, but you learn from the uh, speech of Stephen, recorded in Acts 7, that the calling first came to Abram when he was in Ur of Chaldees. The first verse of our text is undoubtedly correct in its English translation when it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram. You see, at the point in time of our text, Abram and Terah and their families were in Haran on the way to the land of Canaan. And then the text says, The Lord had said unto Abram, referring to the fact that the call to Abram had come at the time when he was in Ur of Chaldees. And he left Ur of Chaldees and he went first to Haran. It may very well have been that the call was repeated in Haran, but the reference of our text is to the Ur of Chaldees. Notice too that the call came to Abram, not to Terah. Yet the whole family had gone to Haran. Abram and Sarai and Lot and Nahor and also Terah. They went to Haran. And from there, leaving Terah behind, Abram and Sarah with Lot went on to the land of Canaan. And notice too, and that's important, that that call came 
definitely as a calling. It wasn't the voice of conscience in Abram assuring him that he might not remain in Ur. It wasn't a matter of Abram's personal conviction that he ought not to stay in Ur, but in whatever form it came to Abram, it came by revelation. Directly, as he often did, in some form or other, or whether he spoke to Abram through a dream or through a vision, or whether he spoke to Abram through an angel, that call came as a word of revelation. Abram was certainly assured that God had spoken to him. And that's the way our text states it, too. Notice that. Now, the Lord, that is Jehovah, had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house, and so on. As far as the content of that call is concerned, we may notice, first of all, that it contains a command. A command. The negative side of that command was, Get thee out of thy father's house and country and kindred. In other words, earthly relations and the earthly fatherland connection with it and earthly relatives and to get a connection with his earthly home that all had to be cut off severed and the positive side of that command was get thee to a land which I shall show thee. Get thee to a land which I shall show thee. And remember, beloved, that's not an uncertainty. We ought to notice that carefully. It's not an uncertainty because the word of God had spoken to Abram. But, it was a certainty that could be uh, attained only by faith. That's the point. Only by faith. The land to which Abram was going was invisible. It was unknown to him. The only word he had was, I will show thee. That's all. That was a tremendous thing, you know. Get thee to a land. I won't tell you the name. I won't tell you the location. Get thee to a land that I will show thee. And unconditionally, Abram had to surrender everything visible, Ur and his father and his relatives and his house and his kindred and his land. He had to surrender all things visible for the invisible object of God's promise. That was the situation. He went out, and Hebrews emphasizes it too, doesn't it? Not knowing whither he went. That was faith. And in this, Abram is an image, a figure of all God's people. Don't forget that. When God calls us 
by His grace, both outwardly and inwardly, we certainly must be willing for His name's sake to surrender all things visible, everything. That's what it comes down to. The world and all that it contains. In order that we may fasten our only hope on the invisible object of the promises of God. He will bring us to a better country. An heavenly country. That's the situation. That's the calling of God's people. You say, yes, but that's not really true, Professor. You think not? You say, well, I don't have to surrender my wife. And I don't have to surrender my car. And I don't have to surrender my house, my children, and my goods, and my bank account. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you don't have to surrender it in in uh, the peak of your life because of persecution, you're going to have to let it go after a while, you know. When you and I die, the Lord is going to say, you have to give it all up. All of it. Give it all up by faith. In order that you may inherit the heavenly promised land. That's the situation. The second part of that call to Abram was a promise. Very definite promise. I will bless thee. I will make thee a great nation. I will make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee. Remember what I said about God's word of blessing when I was preaching about Balaam some months ago over here? God's word of blessing, his effectual word of blessing. I will bless them that bless thee. And his effectual word of cursing, I will curse him that curseth thee. That was the promise to Abram. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I don't think at that time Abraham knew beans of what God was talking about when he, when he said that. In thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Tremendous. Later on, I think he began to understand a little more of that. He never could see anything of it because he didn't get a he didn't get a covenant son until he was a hundred years old. And here God was talking about blessing all the families of the earth and Abram didn't even have a son. How was that going to be? But later on, he saw more of it. The Lord Jesus said once, you know, to the Jews, your father Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it and rejoiced. So he saw something of that, you know. And to thee and to thy seed will I give the land. And he didn't own a square foot. Later on, he had to buy a burying place for Sarah in the cave of Machpelah. The general idea of that promise here is, of course, I will bless thee. I will bless thee. That certainly meant that 
Abram was the object of God's grace. And for Abram, that meant the covenant blessing. In the second place, the Lord would make him great. You know, that was exactly the opposite, the contrary of the people who built the Tower of Babel. They would make themselves great. And they failed because man can't make himself great. Never can. God will make Abram great and all his people great in name and in reality by his grace for time and eternity. In the third place, that promise meant that God would form a people unto himself, a great nation, not just great in the worldly sense of the word, or great in numbers, no, no, great in spiritual significance. And in connection with that, in the fourth place, that promise meant that Abram would have universal significance. He would be a blessing, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. In the fifth place, the promise was that the Lord prepared him a country and would give it to him. And finally, that God would be his covenant friend and protector and would bless and curse according as men blessed and cursed Abram. Now, the fulfillment of that promise implied, first of all, certainly, an earthly fulfillment. No question about that. Abram would develop into the people of Israel. And the people of Israel would not be one among many nations. They would be the wonder nation of the world. And Abram would receive the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan, remember, was not an ordinary land like it is today. Today the land of Canaan doesn't have any more significance than the land of Russia. Nothing special about that land there. People still call it the Holy Land. Well, it's not the Holy Land. It used to be the Holy Land. It isn't anymore. There isn't such a thing in this world as, as a Holy Land. But Canaan, in the old dispensation, was the land flowing with milk and honey. The wonderland of God's covenant. That was the earthly side of that promise. That promise also implied a spiritual fulfillment. The earthly, after all, is typical of the spiritual and the heavenly. All nations of the earth would be blessed in Abram. That implied, as afterwards became clearer, that Abram would ultimately bring forth the Christ. And that through that Christ, there would be blessing upon all nations with spiritual blessings from heaven. He's the father of believers, and his name is great. And finally, there was to be a heavenly fulfillment. Canaan, remember, was an image of the heavenly country. And gradually Abram would understand and would be willing also more and more to be a stranger in that land and to receive the heavenly better country. That's the significance of that passage in the epistle to the Hebrews that I read to you this evening. Notice what it says about Abram and the rest of the patriarchs. 
These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth, even there in the land of Canaan. They were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. That's what Abram did. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. If that was the problem, he could have gone back, gone back to Herod, going back to Ur, but that wasn't it, you see. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And you read in that same connection that they looked for the city that hath foundations, Builder and maker is God. Abram obeyed. He obeyed. He went. He, Sarah, Lot, all the souls that they had gotten in Haran, the servants, to go into the land of Canaan. That was the destination. But remember, he journeyed blindly, directed step by step by his God, not knowing whither he went. And when he reached the land, he built an altar unto the Lord. The altar, remember, was a sacred spot of communion in the midst of uh, the sin-cursed world. It was the beginning of a temple. Altar is really the very heart of the temple. In response to the Lord's appearance unto Abram, the Lord had said unto him, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And Abram took it into spiritual possession for the Lord. Here was the land where the Lord would dwell. He did the same thing later on in Bethel. And he called upon the name of the Lord. Notice. That implies prayer and adoration, the highest expression of gratitude, and the confession that Jehovah was his God over against the gods of the Canaanites. That was an act of faith, remember. What did Abraham have of all that God had promised him? Nothing. Nothing. When he was called to give up things visible, he didn't know what he would receive. He didn't even know where he was going. The Lord would make his name great, and the Lord would give him a place, and Abram became a stranger in a strange land, and the Lord would make him a great nation, though he was 75 years old and Sarah 65 and he had no child and Sarah was barren. When he came to the land, God showed him. Moreover, it was in possession of the Canaanite. What did Abram have, beloved? He had this. He had the promise of the living God that all these things would be realized unto him. He had that. And in connection with that promise, he had a living faith. A faith, remember, that was itself the gift of God's own grace but a faith by which he 
laid hold on the promises of God. And he held on to them, relied on them with all his heart. Faith was the motive power of Abraham's obedience. And in that, he's an example to all his spiritual children. God still forms a people unto himself, you see. Even as in, as in Abram's case, he forms a wonder people. He calls them out of the dead in order that no flesh may ever glory in his presence. And he still calls them out of the world. He does. In order that they may be to the praise of his name. Their calling is not to look to things earthy and visible, but to be willing to give them up, that he may pro provide them a better country. And children of Abraham, true children of Abraham, still obey, even though the whole world is in the possession of the wicked. They believe that in Christ Jesus, all things are theirs. They're convinced of that. And so they spiritually build their altars here, believing that they shall inherit the earth. And they call on the name of the Lord. And living by faith, beloved, God's people along with Abram shall not be ashamed. Abram, as is plain from Hebrews 11, is one of the great cloud of witnesses spurring us on to keep on fighting the good fight of faith. He obeyed and he followed without seeing and he died in that same faith. And we see how the Lord fulfilled his every word. And therefore, the calling to us is, run the race patiently, looking forward in hope to the time when God's word shall be fulfilled and all things shall be realized unto us. And remember, never forget, he is faithful that promised. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for thy word. We pray wilt thou give it a place in our hearts and in our lives. Go with us in the rest of this evening and in the days of the week that lie ahead. Keep us in thy care. Keep us above all in the way of obedience to thee and to thy word the way of a living faith. Dismiss us with thy blessing. Forgive graciously all our sins, sins that cleaved unto us also during this service, and lead us.